It's been an excellent time for me as we've worked through this book, and I'm just amazed, if I can be honest with you, just how much is in the book of 1 John. As I was deciding what to preach next, and I began to read through the book of 1 John, I thought to myself, all right, well, we, we should be able to make some significant progress through this book. We, we should be able to take pretty large chunks of it at one time. Uh, and then as I got into it, I just realized there is just so much uh, to, to pull out of these verses. And so I trust that the Lord is using it in your life. He certainly has been using it in mine uh, to encourage uh, my love for Christ uh, and just all that He has done for us in the good news. And so as you turn to 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, let us turn to the Lord now in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. And it is so true that we will never be able to plumb its depths. For contained within it are some of the most simple truths that even a child can understand. But there are also many complex and nuanced truths and realities that in order for us to truly understand who Christ is and what He has done for each one of those who believe, we must understand and take time to discover and uncover the, the truth and the relationships between the truths that are revealed here. And so my prayer this morning is that as we get into these verses, Lord, that you would use them in our minds and our hearts to motivate us towards obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is as we obey that we experience deep personal fellowship with Him. Father, we're so thankful for this reality that you have not left us to ourselves, but that through Jesus you are working in and through us your good work to those around us. What a glorious message that is. Would you impress it upon our hearts this morning? We pray this in your name. Well, let us begin our time this morning by considering a question. Why are you here? Now, in hearing such a question, you might be thinking on two different levels. Some of you, the more existential type, might hear that question and think to yourself, well, maybe he's asking, why am I here on this earth? Now, that would be appropriate considering all that we have seen and will see throughout this letter of the Apostle John. But this question also is applicable to our more immediate context. Why are you here at this gathering of Christ's disciples? There is a reason, a purpose why we gather. And we see that purpose in our text for this morning. Notice it with me, 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says this, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The first thing that I want us to notice this morning is that John's letter is full of purpose. Almost at every turn, we see that John declares his message with some intended purpose behind it. Now, he sets this purpose off with what we call in the Greek a henna clause. Now, a henna clause is a clause based off the Greek term, maybe you guessed it, henna, and it is intended to show purpose or intention. We often translate these kinds of clauses with the English in order that. John writes not as some merely linguing, linguing, oh, I'm not going to be able to get that word out this morning. Let me try it one more time. Linguing, he's not just writing a letter this morning, brother. He writes so that our lives might be changed. I'm going to have to practice that later in the mirror and hopefully I can get it out. You see, beloved, this morning we gather in order that we might be transformed. That is the purpose of John's writing. And we see this over and over and over again throughout his letter. We see it here in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We also see it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Look down just a little bit where John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you in order that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Notice down in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us in order that it might become plain that they were not of us. Notice it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, where John says, You know that He appeared in order that He might take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world in order that we might live through Him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, By this is love perfected with us, in order that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because He is so also we are in this world. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And finally, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Beloved, hear this and believe it. The purpose of John writing to us and the churches is in order that we would be changed. 
the purpose of me relaying and explaining to you what the Holy Spirit communicates here through the Apostle John is in order that you and I would be changed. We gather here this morning and every Sunday morning in order that we might be changed. Beloved, our gathering here is not merely some weekly event on our schedules. It is not some routine that we engage in because others deem it good and necessary. Brothers and sisters, I trust that you have come here this morning in order that you might be changed. And how are we changed, you may ask. We are changed as we consider again and again, the change that has already taken place in us because of Jesus' changing power. Let me say that again. We are changed as we consider the change that has already taken place in us because of Jesus' changing power. Beloved, I hope and pray and trust that you have come to church this morning in order to hear the good news that Jesus Christ has overcome your sinful and selfish nature and that He is continually transforming you into His likeness as you gaze upon His glory and His beauty week in and week out. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Beloved, I trust that you have come to church this morning and week in and week out in order that you might live, leave here with a better understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for you and continues to do in you through His crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That is the reason why we gather. And it is the reason why John writes this letter to the churches. Now we see this purpose or this reason in two places this morning as we consider these verses. What John tells us at the end of this introduction is that he is writing us so that we might be transformed as we enjoy fellowship with Christ. Let us notice these two purpose statements together. The first reason, the first purpose for John's writing is that we might have fullness of joy. If you're following along in the insert in your bulletin, that is your first fill-in, that John writes, so that we might have fullness of joy. Notice it with me at the end of verse 4. He says this, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
John says that we write these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, some of you may have a little bit different of a translation, especially if you are reading the King James Version, which says that we are writing to you so that your joy might be full. Now, the statement here, our joy, is intentionally inclusive. And therefore, it is intentionally ubiquitous. I got that word out at least. (laughs) What I mean by that is that John is including everyone in this statement, even if only by implication. You see, the apostles' joy would never be complete if the reader's joy was not full in Christ. And so John is writing so that the apostles' joy would be complete in writing it. John is writing so that the audience's joy would be complete in hearing it. And John is writing so that our joy might be complete in reading it. At the heart of John's message throughout this epistle is the fullness of our joy In Jesus. The word that John uses here at the end of verse 4 is the Greek word plerao. It means to bring to completion or to be filled to the brim. It's the same word that Paul uses over in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Let me read it for you. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 says this For in him the whole Fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and all authority. In both John's mind and Paul's mind, our fullness of joy comes from the fullness we have in Jesus. We are those who gather and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, are complete in Him. That is to say that in Jesus Christ, we have all that we need for life eternal and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Now this truth has several implications for us this morning. Let's consider two. The first is that our joy is found in being full of Jesus. Our joy is found in being full of Jesus. The second implication of this text is that everything that John writes in this book is in order to reveal to us what is the fullness of our joy. Let's look at this. First implication, that our joy is found in being full of Jesus. What we learn from this text, as well as several other texts, is that the measure of our joy, hear this, the measure of our joy is directly connected to the measure of our understanding and appropriation of the life we have in Christ. Now, I know that joy can be somewhat of an elusive term. That is to say 
that joy can be hard to define. And why is that? Maybe it's because we often define our joy as a subjective experience instead of a settled reality. That is to say that many of us connect our joy to the things that are going on around us. For example, if I am sitting on a beach in Florida with no cares in the world, then I am filled with joy. But if I am sitting in a cubicle, mind numb by the monotony of my daily tasks, or if I am sitting on a hard floor in a dark and dingy prison, or if my kids have asked me for the hundredth billionth time if we've made it to our said destination, then I am less joyful. You see, often in our minds, joy rises and falls on whether or not things are going, quote unquote, our own way. But the problem with this conception of joy is if our joy is connected to our circumstances and our circumstances are so unpredictable, then our joy will always be fleeting. Our joy will rise and fall on the basis of our condition. But what if our joy isn't determined by our circumstances? What if there is a more stable and steadfast source to which we can attach our joy? If our joy is not connected to our circumstances, then it doesn't matter what our circumstances are, we can still be joyful. And what John is saying here in verse 4 is that our joy is not connected to our circumstances. Our joy is connected to the revelation of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what He has and continues to do in and for us. You see, if joy is internal instead of external, then our joy is settled even if we lose our external blessings. Or even if our external circumstances are difficult. And in Jesus, we are filled with the fullness of joy because we are filled with the fullness of Christ. John records in another place the very words of Jesus in John 15 verse 11 where he says this. You can find it on the insert in your bulletin. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Notice that Jesus himself says that the reason he came was to put his joy within us so that our joy might be full. Our joy then is not dependent upon the things that are happening around us. But instead, 
It is based on the settled state of what Christ is doing within us. And if this is the case, beloved, then the world cannot affect our joy. You see, the world can never offer us this kind of settled peace in our minds and our hearts. It's why John is going to say later in 1 John chapter 2 that you are not to love the things of the world or the things that are in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, if you connect your joy to this present world, then your joy will never be secure. But on the contrary, if you connect your joy to Jesus, then your joy will always be settled. It will never be circumstantial. It will always be a reality. We must understand this morning and trust it and believe it this morning that the world is never a good place to entrust the joys of your heart because the world will always disappoint you. Further still, if our joy is in this world, then we will pursue the world and lose our souls. Jesus says again in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You see, beloved, your love and your joy are indelibly linked. For what you find your joy in, you love. And what you love, you will pursue your joy in. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus' own words to His church this morning through the Gospel account of Matthew and the Holy Spirit says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is very, very interesting. I guess if our joy is not connected to our circumstances, then we are just going to go ahead and press on. I mean, every single light in the building. Oh, there it is. Let there be lights. And there was light. Let's just finish up Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one 
and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here's the point, beloved. John writes so that your joy would be filled in Christ. That is, that as the quality of eternal life is revealed to us through this letter, we would find ourselves falling more in love with that quality of life than the quality of life on this earth. And as we understand what it means to be alive in Jesus, the loves of this world will continue to pass away in our importance. John chapter 12, verse 25 says, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone is going to need this encouragement, beloved, it is going to be the Apostle John. We know from history that John spent a considerable amount of time at the Isle of Patmos, exiled because of his testimony to Jesus. Stripped of all his earthly comforts, John held fast to his joy in Christ. And what we have seen is that so many saints down through the ages have given up home and comfort to follow Jesus even into the most miserable of conditions. Why? Because their hope and their joy was not connected to the things of this world. It was connected to Jesus Christ. But there's a second implication of this statement that bears extraordinary influence on how we ought to read this letter from the Apostle John. If John writes so that our joy might be full, then everything that is contained within this letter will bring us fullness of joy. And the Spirit of God then is calling each one of us to believe it and place our hope and our trust in what is revealed to us. If John writes that forsaking the love of this world will bring us joy, then the Spirit is calling on us to believe it. If John writes that seeking righteousness and forsaking sin will bring us joy, then the Spirit of Christ is calling upon us to believe it. If John writes that we should love our brothers and sisters, even to lay our lives down for them, then he is calling us to believe it and to understand that this kind of love and sacrifice will bring us everlasting joy in Christ. If John writes that we should pursue doctrinal purity, I'm not quite sure what to do about that whole light issue. I'll tell you what, though, I can tell I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, somebody got a phone with a flashlight on it? This is a first. Thank you, ma'am. Can't stop the Lord. Let's see, where were we now? Here's the point, beloved. Everything that John writes in this epistle is intended to show us what is the quality of eternal life in order that we might pursue it. If John tells us that we ought to pursue doctrinal fidelity and that we are to be discerning concerning the teaching of false teachers, then we should believe it and pursue it because it will bring us fullness of joy in Christ. We cannot ignore those who seek to lead us astray because in so doing, they lead us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we must pursue all that John writes and that the apostles write and that the Old Testament prophets write because in so doing, we pursue joy in Christ. Beloved, John writes first and foremost in order that we might be full of joy in Jesus. But there's a second reason why John writes this morning. The second reason that John writes, if you're following along in your insert, and you can actually see it to write it in, there's a second reason why John writes to us this morning. Not only that our joy would be full, but also that we would have fellowship with Jesus. Notice as we back up a second and we see that John's purpose statement in verse 4 is connected to his purpose statement in verse 3. Notice it. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The sentence structure between verse 4 and verse 3 is very similar. Notice it as we read them together. Verse 3 says, We proclaim these things to you so that you may have fellowship. Notice it in verse 3. Rewrite these things so that our joy may be full. It seems that John has the same end in mind in both of these verses. Which means that our joy in Jesus, hear this, our joy in Jesus is found in our fellowship with Jesus. Our joy in Jesus is found in our fellowship with Jesus. Now, I suppose that is really the only thing that makes sense. If we find our joy in any activity, it is only as we are participating, another word for fellowship, it is only as we are participating in that activity that our joy is at its fullest. Let me give you another example. 
If I love to play football, then my joy is at its zenith while I am playing football. If I enjoy to knit or play an instrument or work on cars or walk in the woods or spend time with friends and family, my joy is full as I am actively participating in those activities. I mean, beloved, there is nothing like lacing up my favorite pair of running shoes and hitting the pavements. Moreover, as my cadence quickens, my breathing deepens, and I feel the sweat beating on my forehead, the joy of running is at its peak. You see, beloved, our joy is filled even to the brim as we participate in the very activities that we love most. And so John is saying here, we proclaim these things in order that your joy might be filled in Jesus as you participate in the life of Christ that is within you. To have fellowship with Jesus is to participate in the life of Jesus. And to participate in the life of Jesus is to have your joy filled in Him. But how then do we participate or share or have fellowship with the life of Christ? Beloved, we must be called on to live even as Jesus lived. John is going to say later on in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, he says, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Jump down to 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. He says, but whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, it is in obedience to Christ that we enjoy fellowship with Christ. Now this is not because, hear this, this is not because in keeping God's commandments, we in some way earn God's favor. It is because it is only by Jesus' life in us that we can obey God's commandments. Therefore, every time we are called upon to act in a way that Jesus would act, we have to draw from His presence in our inner man in order to act that way. Let me go back to my running analogy. When I run, I draw from the strength and stamina that I have attained by running. And the more I run, the more strength I have. And as I run, I appropriate that strength. It is only as I exercise that strength through running that I call upon my muscles 
to utilize the strength that is already built up in my muscles. Now this is similar, although not completely similar, to my obedience in Christ. When I am called on to obey, I must call upon the moral and spiritual strength that has been granted to me in Christ Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And the more I obey, the more I call upon that strength. And in so doing, I participate or I share in the life of Christ within me. Now what if Christ calls me to do something really, really hard? Do I experience more of Christ or less of Christ? Do I have more participation in the life of Christ or less participation in the life of Christ? The obvious answer is more. Why? Because the harder the circumstances, the more I have to rely on Christ's strength to overcome those circumstances. But also, the more I experience joy in Christ. When Christ meets me in those hard circumstances and shows Himself to be all-powerful and all-sufficient, I am filled then with a true sense of Christ's ability and worthiness. Now there has to be a distinction made at this point, And it's very important one. So I'm going to repeat it several times, just maybe in a different way. Our fellowship with Christ does not depend on our obedience. Our obedience depends on our fellowship with Christ. Let me say it another way. Our fellowship with Christ fuels our obedience in Christ. It isn't the other way around. Our obedience to Christ is not the grounds for our fellowship with Christ. Our participation in the life of Christ is the grounds for our obedience. Which means then we have to talk about the motivation for our obedience. Why do we obey God? If your response to that question is because I want to please God, then you have the equation backwards. Let me back up a second. Maybe I'm safe to turn this off. Maybe not. I'm just going to set it down. Let me ask that question again, just in case you were distracted. Why do we obey God? If your response to that question is because I want to please God, then you have the equation backwards. Beloved, this must, hear me this morning, this must be absolutely detrimental to your spiritual well-being. Because if it were not, we would not have all of these distractions this morning. And so 
Satan is attempting to draw you away from the point that I am trying to make here, which just confirms in my own heart that the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. Amen? So let me say this again. Our fellowship with Christ does not depend on our obedience. Our obedience depends on our fellowship with Christ. Our fellowship with Christ fuels our obedience. As we trust and rely upon the power and strength of Christ, He then enables us to obey in any situation. We do not obey in order to please God. We obey in order to enjoy God in the process of obeying. Our motivation for obedience ought to be to enjoy the experience of the life and power of the Lord Jesus Christ in the moment of obedience as He strengthens and sustains our love and obedience to God. Fellowship with Christ first, obedience in Christ second. We obey because in obeying, we experience Jesus afresh. We have deep and personal participation in the life that Christ has established in our own hearts and souls. Our motivation for obedience ought to be the joy that we get when we experience Jesus living in and through us and obeying the will of God for us. When my children are testing my patience and I'm on my last nerve, I have to call upon Jesus in that moment to give me supernatural ability to speak patiently to them. Amen? And in this, I experience Christ as He lives His life in and through me to my children. When God is calling on you to be a witness for Christ's sake, but you are fearful and timid, you have to call all the more upon the power of Christ's supernatural work within you to speak for Christ with boldness. And as you do, you participate in His ability to speak with boldness. If you have been betrayed by someone close to you and your natural tendency is to get angry or to run away, Run to Christ. And in so doing, Christ will work the love and encouragement and forgiveness that even He demonstrated in His courage to go to the cross and in His forgiveness to forgive those who crucified Him there. In every opportunity that I am called on to obey, it is an opportunity to experience Christ in my obedience. Obedience in Christ is fellowship with Christ. 
Beloved, John writes so that we might have fellowship with Jesus. John writes so that our joy might be full in Jesus. John writes so that we might know what it means to experience and have eternal life. And we know this. We enjoy Christ's fellowship. And we follow after Him as the Spirit of God is revealed to us through the writing of Scripture. As John works through this book, as we work through this book, we are going to see time and time again what is the Spirit of Christ calling us to obey. And it is in order that, in that obedience, we might participate in the life of Christ within us. Let us pray together. Father, we are so thankful this morning for your grace. We're so thankful for what you have done in us and what you continue to do in us. Father, may we leave this place anticipating all those moments in our week where we will get the pleasure of calling on Christ to obey in and through us. As we think about the relationships that we have, hard relationships, as we think about the people that we desire to witness to, as we think about all of those situations, may we anticipate them with a great joy because in each one, we will get to experience Christ afresh. Would you do that work in and through us? We're so thankful for it, and we pray this in your name.